Hello everyone, welcome to um, our new series on the book of Revelation. Uh, we are so glad that you are here. Maybe like me, you've heard a lot about the book. Maybe you've read it and it didn't make any sense. Maybe you have been to a seminar or a workshop or teaching about this book. And if you're in either of those categories, what I want you to do is I want you to take the next few weeks and listen to maybe a fresh way of looking at the book of Revelation. Maybe I'm going to say something that is in a contradiction to what you've already heard. Um, then you can go and study it yourself. Maybe I'm going to say something fresh that you haven't heard before and I hope it bless you. But what I want to do is I'm also coming to this book for the first time reading it, studying it and it's blessed me. And uh, I, wanna, I want to propose to you what this book meant to the first readers, listeners, um, to, to the first audience and then also what is relevant for us today. So, so we're going on a journey. Please put everything you heard on the back burner. Let's, let's read the book. Let's, let's see what happened in those times in, um, in modern day Turkey and then try to understand what does this book mean to us. Now, there's a lot of talk about the end times. There's a lot of talk about um, conspiracies, about who's the Antichrist. There's a lot of talk about maybe us getting microchips in our foreheads after the coronavirus. Um, all these conspiracies and all these things and what I've seen this does is people base this on the book of Revelation because there's, there's a lot of misconception about this book, there's, a, there's um, a lot of confusion, there's a lot of people saying a lot of things that's not actually in the book and what I want to do is I want us to study the book to see what is there that, that speaks to us and what's the revelation about the book of Revelation. Um, because it's the revelation about Jesus Christ. It's not a revelation about the end times or the rapture or the Antichrist. It's not about those things. It's actually a revelation about the person of Jesus. And I promise you, it will, it will bless you. So just a quick lesson in Bible reading. Maybe you know this, maybe not. When we read or interpret our Bibles, we do two things. We take two disciplines. One is called exegesis. The other one is called hermeneutics. And exegesis is when we translate the words from Greek and Hebrew into modern day language so that we can understand it as the reader or the first listener understood it. And then hermeneutics is when we translate concepts, ideas, principles into modern day language. Um, understanding so that we can understand a good example of this paul writes in 1 corinthians 11 and he says women shouldn't wear any hats now should we take that literally and every should should wear hats so should we take that literally and all the girls should wear hats to church that's the question so what do we do to determine if that is a command for us as well we go and look at what happened in the church in corinth in those days and what happened is there was a lot of it was actually the social norm to wear hats for for women and then the temple prostitutes didn't wear hats they actually shaved all their hair off um, and some of the, the the women in church said that we are free because of Jesus and we're not going to wear any hats anymore so now when the, the the people of God gathered there was a lot of women with hair there was some with no hair and everyone was focused on the women and their hair and if they were 
did have hair or were they prostitutes or what happened and the focus wasn't on Christ. So, so that's why Paul wrote, listen, can we all please just wear hats because the principle is when we gather, we want to focus on Christ and that is what we can take out of 1 Corinthians 11. We don't have to wear hats ourselves to church, ladies, luckily, but we need to take the principle and say when we gather, we as a congregation or as a group of believers, we focus our attention on Jesus and everything that distracts us, we must try to take that out of, out of the way. That's a good example of, of hermeneutics. Now, when we read the book of Galatians or Ephesians, we normally ask ourselves, who wrote this book and why did he write this book? And to whom did he write this? There's a certain, certain group of believers that Paul wanted to address or some of the New Testament writers wanted to address and want a certain message conveyed to them. Um, we do that with all other, other books. But for some other reason, when it comes to the book of Revelation, we don't do this. We think that this book is written for an audience that live 2,000 years after Christ um, and it's only relevant for us now, which is not the case. Um, it, it's, it's just not true because what we do then is we interpret the book of Revelation in our current circumstances and we, 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 we tweak the, the meaning and we change the meaning of the book. So, so this is our very first very important question that we want to answer or ask is to whom was this message written? Because um, if, if you've been following Jesus for, for a while, you will know, maybe if, if you're still new at this, but you will know one thing that he, he isn't a deceiver. And why would he give John uh, the command to write this book and to write down everything that he sees and hears to bless a certain group of people if it wasn't really for them, but only for us 2,000 years after after Christ died because now the book of Revelation is starting to be relevant because the Antichrist and the, the Soviet Union and the European Union and America and the war with China and Russia and, and this and that. It's just not true. So, so what we want to ask is to whom was this book written and what did it mean to them? Did they understand it because they could understand all the symbolic meaning of the the animal coming out of the sea and the mark of the beast. They understood this book and what did it mean to them? And then we can say, this is what it means to us today. So that's our, our first question. All the other books, we interpret the Bible. What did it mean to them? And what does it mean to us today? Um, and, and so we want to do the same with, with the book of, of Revelation. So we're going to climb into a time machine. I'm going to take you to 95 after Christ in modern day Turkey. It's the Roman province of Asia in that time. And there's seven physical places. Um, John names them, the, the, the seven cities, the seven churches. And um, they are under Roman authority and they are led by a man called Dumashihanes. Say Dumashihanes to the guy sitting next to you on the chair. It's a beautiful name, Dumashihanes. And Domitianus was a Roman Caesar, and it was quite um, common in those days for Roman Caesars to, to be fanatical about power. And this is one way that they kept everyone loyal to Rome, even if they weren't in Rome, if they were provinces that were overtook by Roman citizens or Roman soldiers. 
So, so is that they asked them to, to, um, to worship the Roman Caesar. Okay, we call it in Afrikaans, keizerlijke aanbidding. It's, the, it's Afrikaans. So, so they, they Domitianus asked everyone that was under Roman rule to worship him as Lord and as God. So what happened? When there was a gathering in the Colosseum, for instance, then everyone will enter, the crowd will cheer, they will be in anticipation for what's going to happen. And when Domitianus enters and goes and sits on his seat where the Roman Caesar normally sits, they would stand up and they will say, Domitianus, our Lord and our God. And not only did they do it in the Colosseum, but also what these Roman Caesars did is they made statues of themselves and put it in every town and every province so that people can, can often be reminded that they are there. <laughs> um, and what was custom is that they had to do the following. For them to have a work certificate, they had to come to, the, to, to these statues certain, certain times in a day or in a, in a week or in a month. Um, and they had to, to worship at the statue. They had to say, Domitianus, our Lord and our God. And there was Roman soldiers that listened to them. And if they did that, they had some oil, that there was a fire. And they had to put this oil on the fire and then the soldiers, soldiers will declare, listen, you are now loyal to Rome. And because of that, we can give you this certificate. They called it a labellus. And um, with this certificate, you can work. Um, now, you can just start to see the problem for the, the Christians in the cities. is They actually confess that Jesus is Lord and that He is their God. But now this Roman Caesar asks them to say that he is Lord and he is God. And if they don't do it, there was very, very severe consequences. So, so, so what happened is some of them actually did compromise and they went through with it and they said, oh, God will understand. And they said to Mishawanas, our Lord and our God, they got the certificate and they said, listen, we've got families, we need to provide for them. And, um, and they did it. Some bribed their way. They, they, they gave the Roman soldiers some money a lot of money and they got the certificate and Jesus very sternly rebuked them in chapter 2 and 3 and we will we will read that those who went on a compromise with with the the Roman government and then there's others that said we refuse to do this and because of that they were some of them were the most loyal citizens but because they couldn't work there was work but they couldn't work there was a lot of food but they couldn't buy any because they didn't have money a lot of them were um, without work, they were in tough situations, didn't have any money, didn't have any food. And we all, all also see that some of the Christians are actually on the dumping sites looking for food. So they were terribly persecuted by, by the Roman government. What also happened, and this is quite interesting, in, in, um, between the people is that they, they started to spread some rumors. They said the following. They said that these, these Christians, okay, is cannibals. They, they do cannibalism because they eat the flesh and drink the blood of Jesus Christ. So that's the rumors that start to spread. They also are guilty of incest because they sleep with the brothers and sisters. The brothers and sisters sleep with one another. So, so because of those allegations and rumors that's starting to spread, the people started to think we need to remove 
these unholy people from our midst. It's our duty and our right to do it. And they actually started riots. They started small, small groups and um, gangs that went into the houses of the Christians, uh, raped their women, killed the children, um, abused them, and literally left them half dead. And the Roman government didn't do anything. They just turned a blind eye. So the Christians were under immense pressure to bow their knee to Domitianus and say, this is our Lord and our God. And apart from just the pressure from the top down, the, also the pressure from the people is that at any time they can, um, they can walk in the streets and be, um, be abused because they believe and confess Jesus. Now, now this is historical facts and it's easy for me to convey it in, in, in this way, but I want you to think about this. Put yourself in their shoes, okay? Think that maybe you've been to church this morning and uh, you've been worshiping, you've been praying, you, you drank some nice coffee, there was people that prayed for you, you prayed for other people, and you enjoyed it. It was a beautiful time, you experienced God's presence, and, 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 and it was just amazing. And then you go home, and you sit around the table with your family, and you started, you're starting to eat your lunch, and suddenly a group of people from your town, okay, Poch of Stromers, for us now, um, they just burst into your house, they rape your wife, they murder your children, they trash everything in the house, they break everything. And tomorrow morning, Monday, there's a prayer meeting, 6 to 7, recharge, we call it. It's corporate prayer, intercession, what we do. And it's expected of you to be there because you're there every single Monday. Will you go on that Monday morning after that happened and still say, glory, hallelujah. Lord, you are beautiful, you are worthy. You know, you see, this is what started to happen, is the, 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 the believers started to cry out and say, God, where are you? Where are you in all of this, in all our suffering, in all our persecution? Can you see that our wives are being raped, that our sons are being murdered, that we don't have any food, that we're on the dump sites? Are you here? Are you listening to us? Are you going to change this? And are you going to judge them? It was, a, it was a cry for them to, for justice. And they, they asked God, are you going to do something about this? We see in Revelation chapter 6 that the murdered saints stand around the throne of God and they say, when will you have vengeance on our blood? When will you judge the earth and have vengeance on our blood? Uh, so there was a cry from these people saying, Lord, where are you? And do, are you seeing what's happening to us? We are being slaughtered. Some, some um, descriptions in, in the book of Revelation says that they are slaughtered like sheep. I don't know if you've ever been to a farm where a sheep is being slaughtered. It's, it's a horrible thing to see. It's a, and they use this description because that's how they felt. We are being, we're being martyred. And God is doing nothing. It's just going on and going on. And Dumishanus is still on the throne. And, and we still need to bow to him. And we don't have any food. Um, what was interesting is that the Roman people thought that this were the most peculiar group of people that they've ever met. Because, and just think about this, all the normal people or that, that come to the Colosseum, or, or under the, these circumstances and pressures, they freak out. They run around 
they, they scream, they shout, they're angry, they spit, they, they hit, they, they do all these things. But when they put the Christians in the Colosseum and everyone is there in anticipation and they do their worship for Dumitianus and they wait for the gates to open for the lions to come in, the, the, it's been reported over and over that the women and children and men will bow at the center of this Colosseum and they'll start to worship, knowing that in minutes they will be devoured by this, these lions coming out of these gates. But their reaction is one of worship and the people started to ask where does this perspective come from how is it that this group of people that's so marginalized so persecuted so mistreated that in the middle of all this they still worship their god we can't seem to 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 do anything about them where did this perspective come from do you know where this perspective came from it came from the book of revelations it came from the revelation that John wrote down that he had on this island of Patmos and, and he, he shared it with them. It came from that, that Jesus said something to them. And because of this revelation, it lifted their spirits above the circumstances so much so that they could actually endure what's happening and still keep their eyes on Jesus. This is why this message is so powerful. We need to, we need in this time, even we're not being persecuted like these people. We're not in this circumstances. We, we're a bit shaken because of the virus. And it has, in, it has inconven, in, inconvenienced us, if that's even the right word, whatever. Um, but not to the extent that these Christians have. Not nearly. They, they, they got martyred and murdered and raped. And, and we freak out. <laughs> and we throw all our toys out of the cot and say, Lord, where are you? Are you going to heal us? Are you going to heal the land? Are you going to... And we've got different reactions. And I understand that because we feel it. And, and, and I don't want to speak against it. But I just want to say these guys had a perspective because they had a revelation of Jesus. We need the same revelation. We need the same revelation. What is also interesting is the, the, the Roman government said if we, if we strike the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. So what they did is they took the leaders of the churches and some political leaders that were in opposition to them. And they sent them to this island called Pathmos. And there was, um, it was bad circumstances. Um, there was no food there, nothing there. And it's actually written that from the island of Pathmos, you can see the seven places. You can see these seven churches that John wrote to what he saw. You can actually see them. So he was on this island. He couldn't communicate with them. He couldn't help them. They were being slaughtered and martyred and persecuted. And on this, on this island, Jesus appeared to him. And he said to him, write down what you see and hear to encourage these believers. It's not only a message for us now, 2000 years later. It was a message for them. It was important for them because they needed encouragement more than we do. They needed encouragement. So, so let's read Rome, um, Revelations 1, not Romans. Let's go and, and read it and then I'm going to um, just go through it verse by verse. So um, it starts off with this, the, re the revelation of, of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. To show to his servants, and we know now why he had to show this to them, because they needed this encouragement. And this book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
It's not the revelation of the end times or the rapture or the Antichrist. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. And then verse 4 to 8 um, is a song that John wrote. You, you must remember that he had this revelation, this encounter from chapter 1 to chapter 22, and then he only wrote it down. So after he had this whole experience, he wrote down a song. And he said, this is so marvelous that what you've shown to us, what you've revealed to us, that it, 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 it um, inspires worship. And that was what he, he wrote down in verse 4 to, to 7. And then verse 8, he says, I, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Why is this important to the believers? I'm the beginning and the end. Because he, they are seeing the end all around them. They're seeing the end of the lives of their fellow believers. And what Jesus is telling them, he says, this is not the end. The Colosseum is not the end. The murder in the streets, it's not the end. The riots, it's not the end. I am the end. I say what's, when it begins and when it ends. And this is temporary suffering for a glorious inheritance that you will live with me in heaven. I am the end and I will say when it's the end, not Domitianus. And then it's the vision of the Son of Man, verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Can we say that? The patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Pathmos. On account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. That's why he was there. Because he was the leader of these seven. He was the apostle, the elder over these seven churches. And then verse 10. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Now this is interesting because the same description is used in Exodus 19 verse 16. When God for the first time spoke to the nation of Israel. When he gave them the statutes, the law and certain judgment and requirements for them to live a holy life. It, it says also that Moses, they write down, it was the voice like a trumpet. They sounded like a trumpet. It's, it's this voice of authority. It's, it's also a, a voice of judgment because it's, it's the same back then as it is here. It's the voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book, send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. These are seven, I want you to know this, because there's people saying that this isn't seven physical places. It's, it's a dispensation. It's not right. These are seven physical places with physical believers under real pressure, real people like us, working out their salvation, trying to follow Jesus. And in the midst of this tremendous persecution, and he's writing to these seven churches. Then I turned. So he was standing in a certain way and this voice was on at the back. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. So he turned around and this is what he saw. It's difficult for him to describe what he saw. And, and that's why they use imagery. But you'll see how powerful this imagery is. Straight through the Bible, the use of images and stuff to describe difficult stuff is used. And, and, and normally it has the same meaning throughout from Genesis to, to Revelations. And I'm turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, these seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. 
The seven churches. And it, it reminds us of the, the Old Testament of the, the, the chandelier with the seven, um, the seven heads. It's the seven churches. And it's interesting that it's golden. It's a golden lampstand. Let me just explain something to you. In the temple, there were the outer courts where there were bronze stuff. Everything was bronze, made of bronze. And it was symbolic of the flesh or of man. And then when you, when you went further in where the priests were, there were the, the holy place and then the, the holy of holies. Everything in the holy place and the holy of holies were of gold because that is where God resided. It's, it's where his presence is. And everything there was, was gold and everything in the outer courts was bronze. So, so God's presence dwelt there and man dwelt in the, in the bronze area. And once a year, the priest, the high priest went into the holies of holies. We know that. Um, so, so when it says the seven golden lampstands, it's saying that this is God's property. It's God's churches. It's His church. It's His people. This is so precious to me. It's, 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 it's Jesus saying, listen, you've, you've got earthly leaders and you are gathering and you're going through, but you belong to me. You don't belong to Rome. You don't belong to, Ro to, to Dumishihanes. You belong to me. You're my property. It's my churches. He is the head of the body. He's the leader of the church even today. And you'll see that there's in, in Revelations 2 and 3, there's some churches that is say is false churches. I'm not in their midst. They're not part of the lampstands. And the lampstands have been removed, which is a scary thing. It should bring the fear of the Lord over us. Because Jesus is saying, they're not part of me. He, he speaks to each and every one of these seven churches. And he says, I know you. You know, I know you. I know your church. You, you exist with me in heaven. There's a testimony of you. Your saints that gather, you're a legitimate church and you're my property. Seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of verse 13, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. One like a son of man. It's describing, it's describing Jesus walking between the churches, between the lampstands. These churches are burning. They're burning. The testimony of Jesus, the witness of Jesus, the presence of Jesus coming out of these churches. They're placed in the world. And it says that Jesus are moving between them. Like a son of man, it speaks about his, 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 the fact that he's human, his flesh, that he's, he's dwelt among them, he's been with them, and he is with them now. So this is so relevant to their question because they are asking, Lord, where are you? And Jesus is revealing himself to them and saying, listen, I'm with you. I'm walking through the churches. I'm with you guys. I'm seeing what happens and I will judge this. I know what's happening. And this will not go un unpunished. Um, it's the same description that Daniel and his friends used when they, were, when they were thrown into the furnace. It says that they were a fourth one like the Son of Man. Like the Son of Man. Now that was referring to an angel. This is referring to Jesus. So John has a revelation of Jesus. It's like a Son of Man. And, they, and He is in their midst. He's saying to them, guys, you've been slaughtered. You've been murdered. You've been raped. But I am with you. I'm, 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 I'm there. I'm with you. I'm in these seven towns walking between them and, and very present with you. Clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. I'm going to read on verse 14. The hair of his head were white like white wool like snow. 
His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice like the roar of many waters. Clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, John is describing the uniform of a judge. So in the Britain courts, they um, have these white wigs. The, the judge one is long and the attorney's one is shorter. And it represents wisdom to make a judgment. So, um, and the judge's one is longer because he's saying that I'm wiser. That's why I need the, to make the final judgment. So what, what Jesus is saying here with his hair that is white, like white wool, like snow. It's saying that he's got the, he's got the wisdom to make the right judgment. And um, he, the white wool is that his absolute purity um, absolute purity. His eyes were like a flame of fire. What does a flame of fire do? It purifies. He's saying, I'm seeing all the impurity and I will judge it. I've got absolute wisdom and authority and I will judge every bit of impurity in the church as well as in the world. What's happening to you as well as in the world. You must remember that this judgment, he starts with the judgment in the churches. That's what scripture also says. The judgment begins in the house of God. So he starts his judgment with the churches and then it moves over to, to the world. Um, his feet were like, like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. Um, his feet were like burnished bronze. Is saying bronze is the symbol of flesh. And it's glowing and it means that he's judging all flesh. He's judging all flesh. That's the symbolic meaning of burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. So his voice is overpowering. It's authoritative. It's, it's filled with power. And when you hear it, it sounds like a, a lot of water coming down. And in his right hand, he held seven stars. These seven stars are the leaders of the seven churches. That, that Greek word for star there is, is uh, it's messenger. And, and it's, it's debated if it's an angel, the messengers, or if it's the actual messengers, the leaders, the, the preachers of the, of the gospel. And the theologian says that they think that it was the leaders, uh, the, the preachers that God said, I'm holding them in, in my right hand. They've got... The right hand is the place of authority. It's the place of function. It's where we do things. And God is saying, as they are scattered, because they're not with you, they're on the island, they, they, they're removed from you, but I have them in my right hand. I will lead them. I will speak to them. Um, and, and, and God is, is basically saying, I'm in control. I have them in my hand. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. A two-edged sword. The one edge is used for the cutting of, um, of the world. It's literally used to chop down, to cut. And uh, the other edge is used to prune the believer. So it's to cut and to prune. To prune the believer, to cut away all unrighteousness and impurity. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Your face is the, it's almost the, um, the, it's everything that's going on in your life. When you take a picture of someone and their face isn't there, you take the picture over because it's a sum total of his life. And, and it says that his face was shining like the sun. Where do we see this? We see this in the Old Testament when Moses were in the presence of God and he comes down 
from the mountain. His face was shining like a sun and he had to put a paper bag over his face so that he can, the people can look at him. It's the glory of God on him. It's the glory of God on Jesus as he, as he reveals himself as this judge. It's saying that I was in the presence of God. I am God and my face is shining like the sun. When I saw him, and this is interesting, verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me. I fell at his feet as though dead. Listen, John knows Jesus. He was the disciple that had his, his head on the chest of Jesus. He knows him. He's been with him for three years, every single day of his life. He knows Jesus. He was there at the cross. He was there when he stood up in the mornings to pray. He was there where he did miracles. He was there when they slaughtered him. He, he cared for Jesus' mother, church history tells us. And, and this revelation of Jesus is, is so, it's so much that he falls at the feet of Jesus as though dead. And this is interesting to me. And then Jesus touches him on his right and says, it's me. It's me, John. It's me. What does he see? He sees the holiness of a resurrected Christ in his power to judge. It's not the same as he saw on earth. So Jesus reveals himself as he is now, a righteous judge, glorified, resurrected in the presence of God. And John says, this is too much. I'm, I'm, I'm going to die. And it's interesting to me, I want you to hear this, that every time that God reveals himself uh, um, to, to a group from Genesis to the book of Revelation, he always reveals himself first in his holiness. And then secondly, he reveals his grace. And thirdly, he reveals his love. Why is this important? Because we cannot understand the love of God if we don't understand um, the holiness of God. So the holiness of God is so, so important. We cannot lose that out of sight. If we think about the love of God um, and we forget the, the holiness of God, we forget that He hates all impurity. That His love actually means that He's jealous for us and He will remove everything from us so that He can have us. It's interesting to me that we, we, we speak and in church, and I'm also guilty of this, about the love of God and the grace of Jesus a lot. But the holiness, not so much. Um, not one of the preachers in, in the book of Acts spoke about the love of God. It's only John that spoke about the love of God. And it's not that we shouldn't know his love, but we should know his love in relation to his holiness. Every single message in the book of Acts was repent, repent, repent. You've missed it. You've killed the son. Um, and, 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 and he's holy and he's God and you murdered him. And, and now we hear from pulpits all around the world, His grace, His love. And, and we think when, people, when people's heart is softened because of that, that message, that they will, they will for long serve God for a while. But what we miss is if they don't have an encounter with the holiness of God, the purification of God, the fact that He judges, the fact that He sees Everything that he prunes away, that his eyes are flames of fire. If they don't have this encounter, their perspective will be a mushy, great, he's here to help me and to serve me. That's not the gospel. The gospel is we're here to lay down our lives for him. He's a holy God and we're honored to be in his presence. It's not that, we, that he's honored to be with us. We're honored to be with him. 
We're honored to serve Him. We're honored to love Him. And there is a lot of love. And there is a lot of grace. But it's in regards and in relation with His holiness. And this is what, what, what John sees. And when he sees the holiness of God, then he falls at His feet as, as of dead. And Jesus says the following to him, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I'm the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Jesus said, you know what's happening to you guys? It happened to me. I died, but I'm alive forever. And you will be alive forever with me. And I have the keys of death and hades. This is so nice. Jesus saying that he's got the keys. I know you search for your keys all the time. Jesus is saying, I've got different keys than your car keys and your house keys and, and your office keys. I've got the keys to death and hates, and I've overcome it. The death that you're facing because of these evil Roman soldiers and Dumishanis, it's nothing. I've got the keys to death. I've overcome death. Don't, don't fear death. Fear the one that, that you're going to live with for eternity. Don't fear death. Don't fear man, but fear God. Ride there for the things that you've seen, those that are and those that are, to take place after this. So, so what's the main message? Jesus is saying, you guys are crying out. You're being slaughtered. You're being murdered. You're being raped. You're crying out, where am I? I'm here. I'm between the churches. I'm seeing everything. I've got eyes like flames of fire. I've got the ultimate wisdom to make the right judgment. Leave it to me. Don't fear man. Fear me. I am holy and I am righteous and I will be just in your case. There will be justice. You will not be slaughtered like this for no reason. There will be justice, but I'm not changing your circumstances. You will see the message in Revelation 2 and 3. He's saying to them, you will die and you will suffer. He's not changing their circumstances. He's giving them a revelation and hoping that this revelation will take them above their circumstances in order for them to have this new perspective, like this mom and their children sitting in the middle of the Colosseum, worshiping while the lions are running towards them to slaughter them, to devour them. That is the perspective that Jesus is. That is what I want. You are not slaves to Domitianus or to this world. You belong to me, and a heavenly kingdom. I rule over death. I'm the boss of death. And I will decide what happens in eternity and what happens on earth. Turn your eyes to me. Turn your eyes to me. And that's the same message I believe that's relevant for us. Turn your eyes to Jesus. He's holy. And when we see him in his holiness, it's a fierce thing. We will fall as if dead. And we will prune away everything that's in our life that's impure and unrighteous. So that we can stand before him and say, Lord, we've, done, we've, we've worshipped you with our last breath, with our last thought. We love you. So I want to pray for us. Lord, oh Jesus, we, we declare that we love you. That there's no one like you. No one. No judge, no earthly king, no worldly ruler can compare to you. And we pray today, Lord, that we will bow our knee only before you. We will not compromise. Even if we persecuted, even if we slaughtered, even if we're lazy, even if we're passive or just sitting at home, that we will bow our knee only before you, not before pleasure, not before ourselves, not before the enemy, not before the fear of man, but only before you. I pray for the fear of you, Lord, to come over us, to consume us, so that we can have wisdom to make the right decisions. 
We bless you and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Guys, we're excited to share the rest of this series with you. So we see you next week. Have a great day. Thank you.